at North Carolina State University, RTI Science in the Public Sphere program led by Dr. Brian Southwell, and the Society for Risk Analysis through its strategic funding program. Chris is a senior research fellow at NC State University and is the founding director of Decision Analytica, LLC. He's also currently serving on a COVID-19 task force with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, where he's developing public health and risk models to allocate government resources to areas of need. Before starting at NC State University, Chris was an assistant professor of strategic communication at Nanyang Technological University, Singapore, where he also served as the director of the International Strategic Communication Management Program. Dr. Cummings' work focuses on advancing public engagement with science, developing risk communication theory, and improving public health decision-making. Outside of academia, he also consults privately with various Fortune 500 companies on leadership training, strategic planning, and risk communication initiatives. My name is Carrie Grieger, and I'm currently an assistant professor in environmental health and risk assessment in the Department of Applied Ecology at NC State. One of the grants that I lead is funded by the Society for Risk Analysis to grow the field of risk science in North Carolina, which is co-sponsoring this webinar. Overall, the Society for Risk Analysis is one of the leads, world's leading authorities in risk science. If anyone is interested in joining our local chapter of the SRA, please feel free to reach out to me for details. Chris and I are also on the leadership team of the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at NC State. Also, co-sponsoring this webinar, with a mission of integrating scientific knowledge and public values in shaping the futures of biotechnology. Today, Dr. Cummings is going to present a new theoretical development regarding the secondary risk theory, a theory that explains and predicts how risks are perceived today and provides contemporary examples and new data regarding COVID-19 vaccine responses. Without further ado, I'll turn it now over to Chris. Okay. Uh, thank you, Kara, for one, just doing all that you do and leading SRA, um, especially here locally, um, and for all that you've done for me personally. Um, Kara and I have entered a good working relationship since uh, my return from Singapore, um, where I'm working with her and uh, Dr. Jennifer Kuzma in the, the GES program there at NC State. So I'm very thankful for uh, all of the local people that have helped to support me as I've made my transition back to the United States. Um, with that, here's our very quick basic outline before we jump in. I do want to talk a bit about my experience and my research background because it does set the stage for what I want to forward today, uh, which is this discussion on how uh, we need to do better to understand risk perceptions today, uh, which is what has launched my inquiry into the founding of secondary risk theory. Um, with that, I will want to spend most of the time talking about secondary risk theory and how it, how it may be very applicable uh, and useful for us today. And then towards the end of the discussion, I will discuss um, some of the latest COVID-19 data that is under review. Um, and then hopefully if we have time, we'll have some time for some Q&A. If I get too long-winded and I run us over time, um, feel free to email me. I do have my, my email at the end of this slide set. You can find me um, and I would love to have more interpersonal conversations about all of this. Um, you'll note that I originally had earmarked in the original discussion that I would discuss 
potential responses to solar radiation management technologies, and I've cut them from my slides um, for sake of time. Um, so I do want to be able to give due diligence to this topic that I find very appropriate and want to be able to spend as much time as I can to, to discuss secondary risk theory and hopefully get to uh, discuss some of the, the latest data that I've been collecting with, with colleagues. Um, so about my experiences, Kara had mentioned that, yes, I was uh, working as a professor uh, in Singapore at Nanyang Technological University. I was the resident risk communication scholar there in the We Can We School of Communication Information, and I also helped to organize and lead the SRA's World Congress in Singapore back in 2016. Um, so since I left that position, um, it was just so darn far. I love Singapore. I miss my colleagues at NTU, um, but, you know, the, the, the call and desire to be closer to family uh, brought us back to the United States. Uh, my contract ended on January 2nd of this year, uh, and then the world went to hell. <laughs> Uh, and so I was fortunate enough to uh, land back home in North Carolina and be able to start working again with colleagues here. Um, and so I've been uh, working in, in many different uh places, really, even though I'm working only from home. Um, and so I've been working, luckily enough, with uh, Dr. Dr. Kara Grieger and Dr. Jennifer Kuzma on a NIFA USDA grant um, looking at responsible research and innovation for uh, nano agri-foods um, as a senior research fellow there with the GES Center at NC State. I was also tapped to join a COVID-19 task force, and I'm all hel also helping to lead some developments on biosecurity modernization with ERDIC, with the United States. Army Corps of Engineers, um, working also with colleagues from SRA there. And starting on Monday, I will add a, a new sticker to a new, a new patch to the NASCAR jacket, as you will, uh, where I'll be joining Dr. Carmen Bain and Dr. Teresa Selfa um, on a gene-edited foods project with Iowa State University while still living and residing uh, in North Carolina. So uh, lots of fun developments, and I see even some of my new colleagues are, uh, are listening in from Iowa State. So glad, glad to be working and, and see you all. Um, so I do want to show you the other, this, this I do call my NASCAR jacket slide. Um, um, it is, you know, well, a lot of the people that I've worked with over the last 10 or 12 years or so. Uh, and most of these folks that I've worked with are really in applied risk communication settings, looking specifically at uh, finite issues that they were facing and how we can improve our understandings of risk perceptions and risk communication. And in working with a lot of these groups um, in Singapore or Sri Lanka or New Zealand or Australia, um, I saw that a lot of the things that seem to be driving public risk responses were not really reflected in our behavioral theories that we typically use when we actually craft risk communication messages and health communication campaigns. And so that led me, one, to write my dissertation back in 2013 to start identifying how we can expand risk communication theory to better in encounter and, and incorporate different levels of risk perceptions, uh, but to also uh, try and evolve that into what it is today. Um, and that's this, this new article. Um, and I'm very happy that, that SRA was able to uh, share this webinar because it's tied directly to uh, a journal article that I have published as of yesterday. It just came out. So if you would like, I'll share the DOI at the end of the presentation and you can, you can hunt it down for the full text. Uh, but it's with my, my two wonderful colleagues. Dr. Sunny Rosenthal at NTU, and my former graduate student, um, Ms. Shirley Kong, who's now just down the road at Chapel Hill getting her PhD at the Gilling School of Public Health at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, the article itself is Secondary Risk Theory Validation of a Novel Model of Protection Motivation. And what we note here 
is that there have been changes over the last generation or so in how we can um, communicate about risk, how risks are communicated just in society in general. And so we wanted to evolve a theory of individual level behavior change to be able to better predict and explain how people make decisions today. Um, so with that, we start with a bit of a history lesson, um, as we should. I like to turn back to uh, this gentleman's work. This is Ulrich Beck, uh, who wrote a very foundational book uh, in our field, The Risk Society, back in 1986, where uh, Professor Beck notes that modern society has become a risk society in the sense that it is increasingly occupied with debating, preventing, and managing risks that itself has produced. Uh, I think that it's fascinating as well that he wrote this book in 1986, because 1986 is really a hallmark year for risk analysis in our modern era and a hallmark year for risk communication and for uh, noting how risks became much more prescient in the public. And that was out of two large events. We actually call it the Cha-Cha year in risk. Um, that's because in January, that was the Challenger space shuttle explosion in 1986. And later that year was Chernobyl. Um, so we have two incredible worldwide events uh, where suddenly everyone becomes occupied with debating uh, risks and how we manage them. Um, and I think that that's foundational. Um, now, 1986 was not all doom and gloom. Uh, 1986 also gave us Top Gun and Crocodile Dundee. Um, so, you know, it wasn't, wasn't all terrible, uh, but uh, it was a hallmark year for, for putting risk really on the map. And this book really encapsulates how we see a shift into a modern society that is increasingly occupied with debating, preventing, and managing risks. Um, Given that, I forward a notion that we've probably evolved quite a bit uh, as, as a, a, a global citizenry since 1986. Uh, I mean, heck, we've, we've added more than 3 billion people to the planet since then, for one. Uh, but I think that, that life has just changed in many ways. And I think that uh, the risk society has evolved into what I now call the secondary risk society, which I consider a subset of this risk society, where we are still, of course, increasingly occupied with debating and managing risks. But I think that the way that we do so has changed uh, drastically since the times of Ulrich Beck. And I think that we see uh, two primary factors um, causing this, this, this influx. Um, and I think that one is more top-down and it's more policy-oriented and the other one is much more uh, bottom-up, you know, uh, widespread grassroots kind of, kind of forces. Um, these aren't the only two forces that have changed in society since 1986. These are just two of the major ideas that I note uh, to shift how society seems to function around risk and communication today. Uh, the first is that we are in an era where we have increased legislation and increased guidelines regarding what communication must be present or should be present about risk in general. So the notion that there is simply more warning and safety information available today than there has been since the days of Ulrich Beck seems, seems cogent. Uh, and I think that we see this as increased legislation for one sense where we do see a very formal top-down risk governance policy-driven exercise to increase the amount of risk communication uh, that is targeted towards general members of the public. And we see this in the United States across various government agencies, including the FDA, the ATF, uh, the CPSC, who all uh, provide legislation on what kinds of information must be available um, to the public to improve transparency and let the public know what kinds of risks they may assume in their life. Uh, and so this is brought out of good intentions, of course, 
but it is one that demonstrates that there's simply more risk communication available and more warning and safety information available. Uh, this is also noted to be uh, different around the globe. There are comparative studies that look at how much safety information on drug labels there are across countries. And it notes that the United States uh, typically uh, has more stringent guidelines for uh, communicating about the risks to the public. Um, and we also see internally in the United States a uh, different level of semi-formal guidelines uh, that have been created that are for use by practitioners and industry um, and organizations. And so one that I'd like to point to is this work by some of our colleagues from SRA, Baruch Fischoff, Noel Brewer, and Julie Downs. It's a great manuscript, uh, great edited volume rather, that looks at communicating risks and benefits and has lots of empirical information about how we should go about communicating about risks and benefits. Um, to that end, we also have entered an era where legally it's now okay to have DTC communication, direct to consumer advertising on things like even you know, medicine and drugs. Um, and so I wanted to show what are the actual legislation in this area right now. Um, a side caveat here, there are only two countries that allow for this in anywhere in the world right now that say it's completely fine to provide drug uh, advertisements to the public, and that's the United States uh, and New Zealand. No one else. Um, and so they're amazingly hilarious. If you want something fun, go on YouTube later, look up Europeans watching American drug ads, and they all are just hilarious because they're like, oh my gosh, there's 10 seconds of people riding bicycles and picking flowers, and then there's a minute of doom and gloom, right? What is this? Uh, and so here's the actual legislation from the FDA today. Uh, if you are making a television advertisement, you must note the drug's most important risks, the major statement. It must be presented in audio. It should be spoken. And you must have either all of the risks listed in the drug's prescribing information or a variety of sources for viewers to find the prescribing information for the drug. Um, so we see that there's this top-down, you must have more risk communication specifically about the dangers of what is the supposed cure. Um, and so we see this as, as something that's, uh, that's very much a top-down policy-oriented kind of force. Um, I argue that we have seen a lot of change in communication technologies that have uh, made for a more egalitarian style of communication today. Um, and communication technologies have allowed us to obviously have things like webinars where people from all over the world can come in and listen and share ideas like we are here today. Um, but we've also seen that that kind of opportunity comes with constraints as well. And there's been a very interesting uh, discussion around social media and how social media sure may have good opportunities, but it may also have some bad constraints and opportunities for things to go awry as well, especially in uh, amplifying risks where maybe these risks shouldn't be amplified. Um, there's a very interesting study came out um, just no towards the end of last year uh, by, by Wong et al., a systematic review of the literature on the spread of health-related misinformation on social media. And you can see in the bottom right corner, this timeline graphic notes that just the number of studies in this area has taken off like a shot since 2012. And it makes sense because we see social media being much more uh, popular during that era. But we note that, uh, that social media is a place where we can see mis and disinformation and propaganda and rumors spread. Uh, and that seems to be uh, a very pernicious task for the risk communicator that we need to be able to account for in some ways today. Uh, and they note from this paper that while there have been studies uh, on the spread of misinformation on a wide range of topics, the literature is dominated by those on infectious disease. So 
very timely for uh, what we're facing in our current global pandemic. Um, and they note that even specifically, more specifically, that this does include vaccines, uh, which is also timely because it's around this issue of vaccines that I've been studying for the last four or five years that really helped us to found this idea of secondary risk theory. They also note that overall, existing research finds that misinformation is abundant on the internet, duh, uh, and it's often more popular than accurate information. Uh, and that second caveat, I think, is really important, that it's more popular than accurate information. And so oftentimes we see this bottom-up approach building into uh, ad hoc social movements even that uh, may be founded on inaccurate information. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing is an evolution from the days of Ulrich Beck and his risk society, which I still think is a wonderful conceptualization. Uh, but I think that we're seeing a, 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 hype, a hype form of this, a, a hyperbolized form of this that uh, I note to be the secondary risk society. It's really an exaggerated subset of the risk society. And it's one where we're not just worried about the risk, but we're worried about the response to the risk. And that these responses to risks today seem to be more openly contested by diverse stakeholders with distinct motives. Um, I first started exploring this area uh, when I started working with the Australian government when I was back in graduate school. Um, where there were people who were handing out flyers on the beaches um, in in Australia saying um, that you need to be very, very concerned and worried about using sunscreens that may use nanoparticles in them. Um, and this led to a whole new arena for me to consider, wow, what, what could be the implications of this form of communication on things like wearing sunscreen? Because how can a typical person understand which sunscreen has nanoparticles in it and which don't? And the government was concerned, like, this may cause people to just say, well, heck with it, I won't wear sunscreen at all. And here it is uh, already in Australia where two and three people get skin cancer in their life, highest incidence rates in the world. Uh, and so we see that this extra focus on response to risks and what should and has been typically noted to be uh, a good cure by, by public health experts, uh, medical experts, and toxicologists um, note that, uh, that this has been, come under fire more, more readily. Uh, and this goes even to things that we would potentially consider benign, like baby car seats. Uh, baby car seats actually do pose this secondary risk where if, if newborns fall asleep in baby car seats, they are at higher risk of, of sudden infant death syndrome than if they're sleeping in a bassinet. Um, so we do see that there are certainly, uh, you know, associated real risks with these responses. But we also see that, that there's uh, a lot of extra misinformation around these responses that we simply didn't have as prescient uh, in previous eras. Uh, we also see that there's been an increased politicization. Yeah, I did this during my practice run too. I couldn't pronounce the word. Uh, there's been an increased rise in politics over risk management and risk mitigation. Uh, I feel that we have an overt focus on the potential perils posed by responses to risks and that we've, we've come to an era where uh, a lot of these are politicized. And this is obvious uh, in the COVID-19 era. Um, poor Dr. Fauci's family has been getting death threats because he is promoting what is accepted by public health experts around the world as the right thing to do. And he's getting death threats. We've obviously reached a, a level of discourse uh, where this uh, seems to be uh, under fire to a greater degree. Uh, and 
I feel that communication really is the central driver of these conflicted risk perceptions. Um, it is our open ability to communicate across uh, different arenas more readily now that seems to be uh, one factor in increasing this polarization that we see um, in this increased politicization of, of risk. Um, I think that's very, very uh, problematic. Um, and it was in all of my work, working with governments and groups around the world, noting that people seemed to be debating these responses to risks, um, these secondary risks, uh, if you will, that led me to want to elaborate on some of the uh, prime theories that we currently use in health and risk communication. And I found that what we needed was uh, a way to uh, provide more actionable models to measure individuals level uh, risk decision making. And so what we needed were models that could account for not only how people feel about the risk and how they feel about the response to that risk, but also how they feel about the potential risks that are associated with those promoted responses. Um, and I think that that's where, where this work becomes foundational is to improve upon uh, these individual level risk decision-making models that are, that are prominent um, and, and have been used for decades, but don't seem to account for these potentially risk-inducing responses. And so with that, uh, I turned to a theory that I had been using even as a graduate student that I still think is, is wonderful and incredibly valuable. Uh, and I sought to try and elaborate upon it to better encapsulate this idea of secondary risks to improve our level of being able to predict and explain how and why people make the decisions they do around risks in their responses. So I turned to this theory called protective motivation theory written by this gentleman, uh, Ronald Rogers, who wrote the theory back in 1975. Uh, Ron was a, an MD and he wanted to help to understand uh, how uh, and, uh, and identify how people react and behave when confronted with messages that put them at dis-ease. And so he developed protection motivation theory to explain and predict the effects on what we would typically call fear appeals, um, on health me messaging, and to be able to understand how those fear appeals uh, influence health attitudes and ultimately people's uh, behaviors. Do, are they willing to uh, adopt recommended responses to particular threats? And so protection motivation theory at its core really is what we would call a, a problem solution messaging format. It's a theory that helps us to advance uh, risk communication and health messaging by first identifying a potentially fear-inducing problem, a risk, a threat, a hazard, and then advocating for some kind of recommended solution. Um, so what might be the, the behavior that would help to mitigate that particular risk? Uh, and the theory looks like this, and we're going to walk through it. You can see on the left-hand side of your screen uh, four base components. The first two here uh, make up what we call threat appraisal. This is perceived threat severity and perceived threat susceptibility. Uh, for the risk analysts in our audience, uh, this should be very familiar to you. It's basically our typical conception for the basic algorithm for how we calculate a risk in general, where risk is a function of magnitude times probability, right? If you've heard that, you can see it here too. Uh, threat severity is... Uh, how bad is the particular threat? How bad is the risk? Is it something that is, uh, you know, you, a paper cut and you fix it and walk away and off you go? Or is it catastrophic? Uh, and threat susceptibility. This is the likelihood that you will actually encounter that threat. So if there is... Uh, 
a very small chance that this thing will, will influence you. Eh, I don't care. And you move on with your life. Um, but if that is high as well, then you enter into this high threat appraisal scenario uh, where you're more likely to then consider uh, the response. And so down here, we look at the, the two base uh, variables, perceived response efficacy and perceived self-efficacy, which together become this idea of coping appraisal. Response efficacy is, does this response, does this behavior that they are, that they are recommending actually stop the threat? Um, will it actually work, right? If, if we believe that this thing you're telling me to do to stop the threat, if I don't believe it will stop the threat, I'm not going to do it right? Uh, and then self-efficacy. Can I actually do the behavior? Can I do it feasibly? Is it easy? Is it um, something that, that I can do uh, without, without much stress? And so what we see from protection motivation theory uh, is this sort of risk response format, right? And this is really uh, foundational in this risk response format for being the, the type of problem solution focus that we see across just about every health communication campaign uh, in existence today. Um, it's the crux of a health campaign. It's, it's trying to provide for understanding that there is a threat out there and there's some desired behavior of the audience that they can do to protect themselves from harm. So what we do in this risk response format is we first try to arouse fear to some level of a potential hazard, and then recommend for this adaptive response to mitigate that hazard. So first build the risk. If the risk is serious, people will consider it seriously, uh, and then be able to give them uh, that out where they go, okay, what should I do in order to help protect myself? And that should lead to this recommended response. Uh, and so that's what we see uh, in, in protection motivation theory. We start with threat severity, the degree of harm from this threatening event. And if that is high, and we also see that the susceptibility is high, the likelihood that one will experience harm from the threatening event. Ooh, hey, this thing is really serious. We need to pay attention to it. We need to figure out a good response so that way we can stop this bad threat. To put an example case to this, we'll go with a classic one, uh, and that's the, the example case of measles. Um, so if we look at uh, this idea of threat appraisal, threat severity and threat severity for the case of measles, is it severe? Yes, highly severe. Uh, it causes a fever, oftentimes above 104 degrees Fahrenheit, which can lead to brain damage, uh, rash, runny nose, inflamed eyes, inflamed brain, long-term immunosuppression, and gosh, before the vaccine era started, more than 7 million children died per year from the measles. So highly severe, right? Uh, susceptible. Are people susceptible to the measles? Yes, it's a highly infectious disease. In order to understand what I mean by highly infectious, we turn to uh, a term used in epidemiology uh, that is called r naught. That's this R with the sub-zero here. It's, uh, it's a numerical value that helps to demonstrate what's the average uh, likelihood that one person who's infected with the disease will pass that disease on to another person. If that number is less than one, then that means that for every person who has the disease, they are on average likely to pass it off to less than one person. If that number is over one, we have an infectious disease. We have one that is likely to spread through society. Uh, our best estimates currently for COVID-19, we have them as estimates because they can certainly change based on policy, based on social distancing, based on protective measures that we can take. But COVID-19 by itself is noted to be somewhere between 1.4 and 6. So, uh, you know, that's why we see it spreading like we do. The measles, however, is noted to be somewhere between 12 and 18. 
So many, many times more infectious even than COVID-19. So we can see that, gosh, dang, this is a, a highly, highly severe kind of disease uh, and it's highly infectious, high susceptibility. Um, so if we extend this further and we look at coping and we look at how do we now deal with the measles, we can identify that there are likely to be many responses. The number one response is uh, a vaccine uh, for measles, which has been, been created. And here we look at uh, coping appraisal being made up again of response efficacy. Does the vaccine re actually work? Does, is the perceived effectiveness of this behavior uh, high in removing or, presenting that, or preventing that possible harm? And self-efficacy, can I actually successfully enact this recommended behavior? Uh, and so in this case, we turn to the MMR vaccine. Um, and so this vaccine has been touted as uh, safe and effective. And uh, again, before this vaccine, 7 million children died per year of measles. Um, is it responsive? Does it work? Does it have high, uh, high response efficacy? Pretty good. One dose, 93% effective against measles. Two doses, 97%, which is why we don't give it just once to children as they, as they age. Um, is it something that has fairly high self-efficacy. Um, yeah, here in the United States, it's relatively affordable and easy to get. It's available just about everywhere in the nation. It'd be hard to not find this particular vaccine. Um, and if you don't have any insurance whatsoever, completely out of pocket pay, you can find it for less than 90 bucks. Um, I even did a search here locally to see, okay, what's it like right here in Raleigh? Uh, and I found a Walmart down the street where you could get it for $85 and you can go through the drive-through. You don't even have to get out of your car to get the vaccine. So pretty high as far as the self-efficacy goes as well. Now, protection motivation theory would say, if we have high threat severity, the disease is pretty nasty. We have high susceptibility. Yes, we should fear the spread of this thing. It is, we are susceptible to it. Um, then we're gonna have high threat appraisal. If the vaccine works, like we know it does. Yes, it stops the disease. And yes, I can get the vaccine. Then we should have high coping appraisal. So according to protection motivation theory, high threat appraisal, high coping appraisal, we should have high motivation to protect ourselves from this bad, nasty disease. And in doing so, actually intend to go out, get the vaccine uh, and move on with our lives, feeling good about having diminished that threat. This is that classic risk response format. So we have this risk of measles. We build that threat. We use good risk communication to advance what uh, Ron Ronalds would call a fear message. Yes, this thing is dangerous. Yes, you are susceptible to it. But don't worry. There's an easy thing that we can do. We can get a vaccine, right? And the vaccine uh, is effective. It stops the disease and you can get it everywhere. Uh, and this risk response format is the classic version that we've been using for years. Um, and it's the one in protection motivation theory that we would use uh, in order to even do things like uh, assess communication campaigns in this area. And it's been exactly that. I've seen many reports that use protection motivation theory to assess uh, how good a campaign uh, actually does in this exact area. Uh, however, what protection motivation theory doesn't touch, and the reason why, why we're all here and why I'm so excited to talk about this, is because of, of the other bad elephant, you know, the big elephant in the room, uh, and that's, that's the tough question. What happens when the cure itself is perceived of as risky? Um, and, and I'm not the first person to ask this.
right? This is something that's been asked many times over. Um, this is something that's been looked at, um, gosh, forever. The idea that there are two risks uh, at, at judgment here. It's what all of cost-benefit analysis is, uh, looking at potential response options and trying to figure out the best way forward. Um, there are many books in this area. One that I actually lean on in the paper uh, pretty well is a book by Graham and Wiener, uh, Risk Versus Risk, which looks at policy options across two different risks. How do we choose which one is better? Um, however, what's not happening is the creation of a good theory that helps us to identify in individual level behavior change in this area, which is where I forward this new theoretical development, secondary risk theory, to help better explain what I call a risk response risk format. And I think that that's what we see in the case of measles, in the case of vaccines in general, and truthfully in the case for just about all risks today, as members of the public try and figure out day to day, how do we navigate our risky world? What we end up with then is this risk response risk format, where we have a primary risk, something like the measles, a promoted response, something like the MMR vaccine, but that may prompt new secondary risks uh, in the minds of the audience. And these are the risks that are associated with the response. And they are very founded ones. There are things like side effects. Side effects of the vaccine do include things like injection pain, soreness, redness, mild rash and irritation. Uh, but then there are all the untoward things that can creep into people's minds, that get communicated in the public, that make mainstream media and social media, uh, and that becomes all of these other associated perceived secondary risks. Um, and we do see things like uh, fears about autism, fears about sudden infant death syndrome, compromised immune systems, all as potential secondary risks of the vaccines. Uh, and I think it's important to note here that when we're talking about secondary risks, we don't have to be talking about real secondary risks. When it comes to individual level decision making, it's about perceived secondary risks. And so even if the risk is completely not factual, it still matters. And it still will change how people actually respond to uh, risk messaging and will shape how they actually decide uh, to protect themselves from harm. And so uh, even perceived secondary risks about risks that aren't even real uh, do have significant bearing on decision making and significant bearing on actual public health behaviors. And so it's that notion that really makes me want to forward this theory to be able to better predict and explain how people will uh, respond to particular risks. So this notion of secondary risks, um, it is one that I've borrowed from, uh, from the project management field, where they note it to be risks that arise from direct results of implementing a risk response. Um, I actually used this in my dissertation in 2013, later that year um, from when this, this was written. Um, but really, these secondary risk perceptions are likely to be significant drivers in this decision-making process. And even the most prominent theories like protection motivation theory don't consider this very core uh, variable that, that should be accounted for, um, where we are promoting a cure and gosh darn it on people's minds today are these new secondary risks associated with that particular cure. And so it's with that, that I took PMT uh, along with my colleagues and we adapted it to secondary risk theory. 
Uh, this has been done before by others. If you have ever heard of the theory of reasoned action and the theory of planned behavior, they are two different theories, yet they have almost all identical variables. Theory of reasoned action is the exact same as theory of planned behavior, but theory of planned behavior adds in another variable. Um, we kind of did the same thing here, right? We took protection motivation theory and expanded it with our new conception of secondary threat appraisal. So what this leads to is a better understanding theoretically of this risk response risk format, where we maintain that primary risk and its primary threat appraisal. So that might be our understanding of measles and understanding of the threat severity and susceptibility to measles. And the same response from protection motivation theory dealing here with the MMR vaccine in our case. Uh, but then we do include those extra new variables, perceived secondary threat severity and perceived secondary threat susceptibility. And we consider this that secondary threat appraisal. These are the uh, potential uh, secondary risks that are posed by that vaccine, that are proposed by that response to the risk. Um, now, in our case, uh, and how we actually founded the theory empirically, um, and help to demonstrate some validity for it, uh, we were looking at vaccines. But this doesn't translate to just vaccines. This can translate across all domains of risk and response. Uh, and so I think that this is going to be uh, something that should be used foundationally, uh, not only just for health communication, but environmental communication uh, and other fields as well. Uh, now, if we look at this, we can break it down across a few sections. Um, if we look just at protection motivation theory, if we have high threat appraisal, we have noted that there's high severity, high susceptibility, and we have high coping appraisal. We've noted that the response works and we can do the response. We should have high protection motivation. If we add in secondary risk theory, and we put here down in the bottom, our third new variable, and we note that we still have high threat appraisal, high coping appraisal, but now we have low secondary threat appraisal. That means that say something like the risks of the vaccine appear or are perceived of as a very small, then people will still be highly motivated to protect themselves. Um, however, what protection motivation theory doesn't touch is what concerns me most, and it's what we see with a lot of the misinformation and conflicted risk information in today's society, and that's where that secondary threat appraisal may be perceived of as high. So where PMT fails, unfortunately, is to account for when people go, yeah, the threat's really bad. Yeah, the response works to stop the threat, but gosh darn it, that response might cause new problems, right? It may cause new associated secondary risks. And that is where we get into this new level of potentially dissonance um, that may obfuscate the decision-making process and result in low protection motivation. So from this foundation, uh, we ran a, a very large scale experiment to put it to the test, um, to actually see does secondary risk theory work uh, and uh, can it actually build uh, upon the explanative power and improve upon the explanative power from protection motivation theory. So in order to run our experiment, we first kept all of the best idealized versions of protection motivation theory present in our, in our experiments. And in our experiment, uh, what we were actually doing was using a, a risk communication messaging experiment. So providing people with uh, uh, disease information and vaccine information. And in that information, we kept all the traditional protection motivation theory components uh, at a high level, meaning that it should work, right? According to PMT, we should see good, solid, responsive outcomes, high threat severity, high threat susceptibility, high response efficacy, high self-efficacy. Then we actually included 
our new manipulation. And what we were manipulating was our, our new variable that's under fire here, secondary risk. And so we did this in what we call a two-by-two two factorial designed experiment, which is a fancy way to say uh, that we gave some people a message that had a high secondary threat severity, the vaccine may pose uh, you know, significant problems, and a low threat, secondary threat severity. The vaccine has very, very mild side effects. Uh, and then we also did the same thing for threat severity, for susceptibility, um, making it a high version of this, that it's quite common to experience these things, or that it's fairly rare. Uh, and then we wanted to be able to compartmentalize secondary risk theory from protection motivation theory and compare them to assess the viability uh, of this new theoretical enterprise to see if it does make significant, uh, significant changes um, in the power by which we can actually uh, explain the variants that we see um, in outcomes like people's intentions to get vaccinated. Um, so here's a little infographic uh, by the numbers. We used two countries for the study, one in the West, one in the East, USA and Singapore. We had over 1,200 participants who uh, were representative samples of each country. Uh, again, we had this two-by-two two between subjects experiment, manipulating secondary risks. And we said, we can't just test this for one disease. We've got to make this a, a bit broader. So we tested it across four diseases, dengue fever, chikungunya, bacterial meningitis, and cholera, all of which uh, at the same time when we were testing had vaccines which were uh, being um, worked on. Uh, so research and development uh, underway for each of these diseases. So if you add it all up, four diseases, uh, a two by two factorial design experiment, we have 16 cells there, then two countries. We ended up with 32 cells of individual inquiry in our very large scale experiment. So foof, a lot to look at. Uh, and if you want to look at the minutia across all of the testing, country testing between the United States and Singapore, across the diseases, all of that is within uh, the paper published yesterday. Woohoo! Uh, but the next slide that I'll show you shows our big main effects, and that's this uh, two by two factorial designed experiment. So looking specifically uh, at what happens when we compare protection motivation theory to secondary risk theory. Um, in order to better understand uh, what's going on here. So uh, excuse me for the egregious wall of, of data. We'll get through it. Uh, on your columns here, you see our four experimental conditions. So low severity, low susceptibility. And this is the secondary risks, the new risks posed by the vaccine. Same thing, low severity, high susceptibility. Uh, the side effects aren't so bad, but you will encounter them. Then we get to, yeah, the side effects are a little worse than, uh, than you know, other vaccines potentially, um, so a higher severity, but you're not going to encounter them very often. And then finally, of course, the, the big bad wolf, right? It's, it's potentially a bad secondary risk. Uh, when we look across the columns, you'll note the two columns in red. These are structural equation models. Uh, if you wanna get into the full method and analysis, of course, please please take a look at the paper. Uh, for our more lay audiences, we'll cut right to the chase. Uh, what these numbers in red denote for us are the level of vaccine intentions that are explained by the variables included here. So, for low severity and low susceptibility, protection motivation theory in this upper left first block, it explains roughly 30% of the variance that we see in vaccine intentions, which is by and large pretty good. Um, now, this is the best case scenario for protection motivation theory. The side effects of the vaccine 
They're low secondary severity, low secondary susceptibility. So here's where protection motivation theory should shine. Um, and we see that when we add in uh, the second block and actually test this against secondary risk theory, that we see that variance jump from 30% all the way up to 42%. Um, now we go, yes, our theory explains more than protection motivation theory, but yeah, we have more things in it. So it should explain more. Um, however, we weren't expecting it to jump up quite that much. Um, so we note that, that this explains a, a good chunk more of the variance, even in the low, uh, the low scenario, the best case scenario, as far as it goes uh, for, for this kind of secondary uh, risk. Um, when we go over a couple of columns, we get into the stuff that we were more interested in. What happens when that secondary risk is, is really going to, to affect people, when there's a chance for severity here? Um, and we see a very big increase um, if in our high severity and low susceptibility condition, and of course, in our high severity, high susceptibility condition, where protection motivation theory just cannot help to explain what's going on here. Um, and that's very important for us, because what we've done here by the simple inclusion of the secondary risk variable is drastically increased our explanative power and our predictive power to better understand why people make the decisions that they do when they may hold these kinds of reservations around the cures that are being you know, touted in their faces as the thing that they should do. Uh, and so a couple of the big takeaways here um, from secondary risk theory is number one, in this high risk treatment, secondary risk theory triples the explained variance. It adds an additional 30% to help us understand things like that, uh, that risk behavior intention, um, which is far superior to what PMT uh, can do. And so what this really tells us is that in cases where people may perceive the cure to be risky, um, if we use PMT, we're likely creating erroneous type one errors here where we have uh, amplified this optimistic view that people will be uh, intended to get a, a vaccine or do some behavior when in likelihood they are not going to because we haven't accounted for secondary risk. Uh, and when the secondary risk is prevented as severe but unlikely, secondary risk theory still explains an additional 20% uh, of the variance. And, and we feel that these have some significant implications. Um, as individuals vary in their cognitive appraisals of secondary threats related to virtually any risk-reducing behavior, uh, employing secondary risk theory will improve our audience analysis and help to better inform subsequent risk communication messaging strategies. So we can use this theory uh, foundationally in formative analysis to better understand how people feel about risks and responses to risks so that way we can then improve our risk communication campaigns. Um, and I know that we have some representatives um, from EPA and from other uh, government agencies on the call. I hope that you uh, find that this theory will be of value uh, in helping to set up some of the data collection that then uh, are used to be the empirical basis for risk communication. Um, that's, that's really our goal here is to, to get this to be something that can, that can be empowering uh, for our professional risk communicator, communicators um, who are our readership. Uh, and so what we note here is that PMT old school kinds of based campaigns put considerable efforts into promoting risk response actions only to see their target audiences still reject the target behavior because the secondary risks aren't accounted for in their models. So this theory can support campaigners with a more comprehensive and adaptable framework that supports this level of strategic planning and targeted intervention with a more informed perspective on the behaviors that they're promoting.
Um, and as a society, uh, as we continue to produce uncertain and often contradictory risk reports, as public discourse seems to be increasingly challenged by mis- and disinformation, by rumors and propaganda, uh, I feel that in the, all of this space, uh, we need this theory. We need secondary risk theory as a next best step to help improve behavioral predictions of individuals uh, as they confront risks and responses. And so uh, that's that's why we're my colleagues, uh, Sonny and Shirley and I are excited that this article's out, um, as it is one that we feel may be uh, of extreme value uh, and hopefully helping to improve public health and risk communication um, by actually improving our ability to explain and predict how people encounter risks and responses. Um, so uh, we're, we're very thankful and happy for, for this opportunity to be able to share uh, secondary risk theory. Um, and we've actually been evolving it further since, uh, since this work went under review and was accepted for risk analysis. Um, I'm going to share with you uh, some of the basic data from another article that is COVID-19 related, where we employ secondary risk theory and include some other variables to demonstrate how we might be able to use this in a more applied sense. Um, while I can't share with you exact specifics of the paper because it is still under review, uh, it's under review not in a communication journal, it's under review in a very prominent health journal. Uh, and this is uh, my colleague, Sonny, leading this effort where he did most of the data collection, starting us from the question, does rapid development of the COVID-19 vaccine make people more hesitant to it? That was our, our initial research question. And so here we ran another experiment uh, in which we evaluated how people evaluate three different timelines of vaccine availability, including if that vaccine would be available next week, within the next year, and within the next two years, in order to then uh, better understand uh, how people's risks and secondary risks might be affected by this expediency. Um, would people uh, be more likely to believe that the vaccine has secondary risks if that vaccine comes out next week versus in one year or in two years? Um, and then ultimately, will they be inclined to, to take an FDA-approved vaccine uh, based on these timelines? And so in this, we had multiple covariates as well that we wanted to test. And these are uh, antecedent value predispositions large part, in the large part um, that might influence uh, all of the levels of decision-making here that we wanted to be able to track and account for. Uh, and so these included uh, vaccine conspiracy beliefs where we used a, uh, a scale that is the vaccine conspiracy belief scale. Uh, we also used questions from an upcoming scale that we're designing that will be under review soon uh, on science and technology beliefs and decision-making that are mostly focused on science pessimism uh, and then also uh, mass media dependency, mainstream media dependency for information specifically about COVID-19. Um, and what we see here are, are some interesting takeaways. Um, number one is that vaccine willingness is high. Um, people are not unwilling to take this vaccine pretty much now, even for a sooner than expected uh, vaccine uh, ex expediency. If the vaccine came out next week, most people were still willing to take it so long as it is FDA approved. Um, yet, perceived inefficacy and vaccine risks are higher for the sooner than expected vaccine. And this makes sense. Uh, if people thought that the vaccine was rushed to some degree, they were more reticent of it. They believed that it might be less effective and that it might pose uh, more secondary risks than uh, those that might take longer to actually pass 
the, the trials to uh, become FDA approved. Uh, and I think this is, this is interesting because people are still willing to accept the vaccine and accept the higher risk in these categories. Um, and so we see that uh, this trade-off is, is something of value. To be able to note from secondary risk theory is something uh, that we can start to articulate when and where does one risk push the other risk. And it's through secondary risk theory that we'll be able to get individual level data to be able to identify where that tipping point might be, where uh, the secondary risk might push the primary risk uh, out of focus to actually diminish uh, protection motivation theory. And it's going to take a lot more testing for us to be able to get to that level, but that's, that's where we're going. Um, vaccine conspiracy beliefs and science pessimism, the antecedent variables, were certainly the strongest predictors of vaccine hesitancy. Um, so that means that for folks who already know they don't want vaccines, they don't like science, they already believe that vaccines have all kinds of nasty bad stuff going on, they're not going to get vaccinated regardless of what we do. Um, so knowing that these are the strongest predictors of hesitancy, uh, we know that, that that group will just be there. Um, and that group's not new. That group's been around since Edward Jenner created the first vaccine in 1786. The anti-vaxxer society started then. Um, so that's, they're out there. Um, and, and there's not much that we can do except try and improve some of the communication around beliefs and value systems that might help to cultivate, uh, you know, some, some evolved uh, beliefs in that area. Um, the other thing that we thought was interesting was that mainstream media dependency was actually related to increased perceived vaccine efficacy and increased vaccination willingness. So the more that people actually depended on mainstream media for their COVID news uh, actually was related to uh, increased good outcomes, which notes that mass media and mainstream media may still be a very good and strong and viable way for us to communicate effectively uh, around this risk response risk kind of issue. Um, so Conspiracy beliefs have the largest effect, uh, and this is consistent with what we've seen elsewhere, um, and that such beliefs may largely define individuals who will outright reject a vaccine regardless of the speed of development. Um, now, there's something interesting here. There's an intuitive conflict between rapid vaccine development and ensuring safety, right? However, perceived vaccine efficacy and self-efficacy were generally high and perceived vaccine risk was generally low. Um, so this is, this is good news, right? The quickness of producing a vaccine did not incline respondents away from the idea of getting vaccinated. It didn't lessen their willingness. Um, and overall, uh, they had a favorable impression of a vaccine, even if that vaccine were to come onto the scene next week. And so it's really worth noting that most respondents in our study expected a vaccine to become available um, after at least six months and nearly all expected at least a one month wait. So this suggests that the one week group uh, represented this sooner than expected vaccine. And even for that group, uh, they were still willing to take it. So if an approved COVID-19 vaccine becomes available sooner than, effect, than, than expected, the rapidity alone will not be a deterrence uh, as far as we can tell. And, and that's, um, again, among those who are already potentially planning on getting vaccinated. Um, does not have to do with those who are just weary of vaccines from the outset. Uh, I know that that's a lot. I know that I speak like an auctioneer. Uh, I know that I have way too many words on my slides. Um, and uh, I know I'm very grateful for you to have listened to it all. I don't know if we have time uh, for any questions. I'll defer uh, to Kara for that. Um, I do put my email here and I am wonderfully available to have a further further dialogue um, with with any of our our listeners about all these issues. So, uh, Kara, were there any, any points that you wanted to discuss? Or yeah, thank you so much, Chris. That was.
was a really excellent um, presentation. We enjoyed it a lot. So thanks. We do have a couple, just a couple of questions right now. And actually I have a question, but I can always ask you that um, later. So right now we have one question about kind of who judges the conspiracy and consensus. So um, the background of that question is, um, that the assumption that scientific consensus is warranted on a brush vaccine and emeritus immunotoxicology professor from Cornell disagrees with Tony Fauci about pushing COVID-19 vaccines. So who judges conspiracy and consensus? I think that's an incredible question and I don't have an answer for that. I, I really don't. Um, you know, um, as, as my role in looking specifically at risk communication perceptions, um, you know, what we tend to do is to look for guidance um, oftentimes from those who uh, maintain positions of power. Um, and so we do defer oftentimes to state health departments and to the CDC and these folks. Um, and so, yeah, who, who judges is certainly a whole different value-laden, different axiological conversation. Um, and I think it's a valid question, a valid point, truthfully, that, uh, you know, all of this is laden with different value hierarchies um, and different power hierarchies that certainly uh, may describe what we consider to be levels of acceptability. Um, and so, you know, here I'd, I'd probably turn to um, folks like Orwin Wren, um, from our Society for Risk Analysis, who have written a, a fair bit about this, about how, uh, how you know, even, even under best cases, uh, the best science is still something that is not objective and is value-laden and, and oftentimes laden with, with subjective expectations. Right. Thank you. We did have another question um, that noting that this is a highly individualistic framework for thinking about decision-making. So since 1986, there has been... Um, there has been very important work in cultural cognition. Even in the case of vaccines, the rates of compliance are surely related to public health requirements um, relating to going to public school, a reality that highlights the collective nature of managing risk. The individualistic point of view is also more salient for certain cultures. Uh, I think it's a very valid point. Um, you know, you're talking about the cultural cognition work, the Yale group, uh, Dan Cahan is a, a good colleague. Um, and, you know, this this is uh, certainly something that helps to bespeak to uh, how uh, culture and values definitely shape um, risk response. Uh, now, what secondary risk theory does is it looks at what is what is truly most central to this idea of risk and response and helps to articulate how what's been missing out of a lot of the individual level kinds of uh, theory building to explain individual level decision making is really about just this tiny crux. Um, you saw in, in what I showed about the basic COVID data that we're including all these other potential covariates. Um, what I didn't show you there is that we did actually have uh, measures that help to look at some other demographics and sociographics, some of which uh, might even be considered as cultural worldviews. And we noted that, that in, our, in our structural equation models, they actually didn't uh, bear um, any, any, any significant weight in helping to explain and predict uh, outcomes, which I thought was fascinating. Um, in other studies, we certainly see this being, being at the core. Um, instead of my current work with uh, Dr. Jennifer Kuzma and Kara Grieger, we're looking specifically at different cultural worldviews um, and how they influence people's adoption for different risk management strategies. Um, so certainly something of value that I think could be some more of those um, considerations that we might use to help even further uh, explain and predict risk responses. Okay, thanks. And I think we have time for one last quick question. Um, somebody asked, how does the secondary risk theory address the, the difference among sectors in which the secondary risk can reside? So for example, in the COVID vaccine case, um, 
what about the folks who are perceiving the secondary risk of the economy as a solution to a battle? Yep, absolutely. Um, this is something that we wrestled with in the conceptualization of secondary risks. As we are putting it now, we are looking specifically at the health threats posed by the responses. But there's a whole bunch more here, right? We could have social and con- conditions that might be uh, influencing this, economic factors, um, social norming uh, components of this. Um, For us, for now, we wanted to keep this as tight and as considerate to uh, more of a a health and threat-oriented perception, but I certainly think that there is is room to evaluate other types of secondary risks and it may be of value uh, to turn to other colleagues who have looked at building typologies of risks um, to be able to look at other considerations of how they how they might influence um, these kinds of responses, certainly as well. Um, you know, it's noted also from protection motivation theory. They talk about. Um, other costs. So the typical conceptualization um, that is this kind of carte blanche extra variable of other re- response costs uh, is something that's considered. It's one that we that we discussed in, in the risk analysis paper as well, uh, where this becomes kind of a catch-all, right? What are all of the other things that could influence decision-making here? And certainly economic factors are one, um, social norming factors, social factors in general, um, you know, all kinds of things could be thrown in here. And in truth, we had to argue uh, that secondary risks could be considered part of this carte blanche catch-all, but we think that it's so central to the typical rubric of health decision-making that we wanted to forward this as as a concrete idea um, because it is so foundational in explaining the variance that we see uh, across all potential conditions. So um, yes, there's a whole bunch more here. This is just trying to really uh, focus in on, you know, what might be that nomothetic causality. What's what's the, the fewest variance variables that give us the biggest bang for our buck. Yeah, thanks. Well, I realize it's 11 o'clock. So if for those of you who need to go, feel free to, you know, log off. But we do have a couple more questions. And so I thought maybe we could just stay for five more minutes um, just to answer just like a couple other questions. Um, but I did want to give people the, the out if they needed to go right now. Um, okay, so we do have a, a couple more questions um, from some colleagues that um, it's kind of three questions all in one. So first, um, what is the influence you think of the secondary risk afflic- that affects yourself versus others? And so your your vaccine cases are of secondary risk to self, yeah, but what about others? Okay, second, what Let's is just the start second? there. Let's just okay. start there. Let's go one by one. That's probably okay. easier. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, uh, actually my graduate student, uh, Kongwei Yi, Ms. Shirley, uh, who had the picture earlier on, uh, her, her master's thesis was specifically looking at vaccine intentions and uh, what we call third-person effects. Um, so... Uh, do we portray the risk as one that affects you yourself, uh, your close loved ones, or society in general, that third person? Uh, and so, uh, you know, there are certainly considerations here. Um, what we've tested is just the individual level. Um, I think that there's certainly messaging that should, uh, hopefully, hopefully this turns into a career uh, of, of uh, exploration in this area, because I think that there's so many other valuable, rich considerations, and being able to consider risks to oneself versus others versus, uh, you know, third-party societal level considerations, especially for something like vaccines where we're trying to build herd immunity is is so valuable to consider. Um, As far as her work, um, we actually didn't see uh, much difference, and it was in Singapore where it's more of a collective society, Um, but even there, we didn't see much of a big push in difference between individuals um, and and 
you know, these kind of third person effects of, of you know, uh, levels of altruism. I should get vaccinated in order to protect those who are more vulnerable than me in society. Um, what we, we have seen in, in the vaccine literature, um, some who note that this kind of altruism certainly seems to be a driver for certain, uh, for certain people, but, um, and not others. Um, I think this kind of ties to um, even Slovak's old conceptualizations of the white male effect, um, where we see this group in society that, uh, you know, feels impervious to harm, and they have hierarchies and, you know, uh, hierarchical notions where they have greater power and access in society. And so these kinds of messagings of altruism just don't seem to work with those groups. Uh, and so, you know, certainly there are effects uh, that we do see across the board on, on others, though. Um, so I think it's a valuable consideration to continue to look into. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, we also had another question about what if the secondary effect is a co-benefit versus a countervailing risk? That's fascinating. Um, I think that's fascinating. Um, you know, what we typically promote in and risk communication by and large from folks like Ron Rogers, Kim Witte, um, is to try and first increase the level of threat perception and then note all of the benefits of the response. Here's the amazing ways that it will all benefit you. So I think some of that is, is uh, kind of the, the tried and true uh, prescribed method for risk communication around responses. Um, but I think that there's going to be a lot of nuance and, and interesting areas to, to continue to evolve here. And I think the idea of co-benefits versus this kind of co-risks or primary versus secondary risk is something that's that's certainly a value to explore. I'm not sure. I have a pretty good idea who uh, who wrote that question, I think. And so I'd love to follow up. Um, okay, so good. And then um, another quick question about like the influence of political culture. Like, I think that this is going to be very interesting to digest, you know, like post-2020 to look back on this and the influence of political culture. Uh, I mean, the political culture right now is certainly a, a tough one for being able to do much of anything in the area of risk communication. Um, you know, my colleagues who are working in, in federal agencies and myself consulting with them, um, you know, many people feel hamstrung in this era uh, to be able to enact what we would consider have been the tried and true best practices and guidelines. Uh, and so, you know, what we're seeing is, is very much uh, a top-down presence um, that seems to uh, drive the same messages as oftentimes the mis- and disinformation that were typically uh, sectored and cordoned off in social media. Um, and in some ways, they still are cordoned off in social media, but that's a that's a different tweet, um, if you will. Right. Um, but I think that these are certainly forces that uh, that are are very difficult and and have obvious public health outcomes. You know, for COVID here in the United States, we have over two hundred thousand deaths. Um, that that is, that is factual information, um, and the fact that factual information is under fire uh, and and is tough. Um, that being said, there's also a different level of nuance of difficulty here because in something like a pandemic, we're writing a, a book chapter. There's a new uh, Springer book on pandemics and communication that we're starting to uh, to write for is, is the cycle of science. You know, cycle, science is supposed to have errors and be corrected. Um, that, is, that is what we do with science. Um, and that is troubling when it comes to uh, a citizenry that uh, wants the best information now. And gosh darn it, if you are wrong once, you're wrong forever. Uh, and so what we're seeing is, uh, is, you know, increased pessimism in science potentially as an outcome of, of some of the perils of the scientific 
the problem with scientific inquiry where we find one piece of the puzzle and we report and then we correct and we have this give and take with science and this ability to uh, be reflexive and corrective um, and building. Um, and that becomes very difficult for risk communicators um, when at the end of the day, people just want to know what do I need to do? Is it safe? Yes or no. Um, tell me what to do and I will do it. And then we'll move on with our lives. And when that narrative keeps changing, um, which we saw in the United States with an, uh, not enough communication about PPE, right? Um, don't use all the PPE, don't use the masks, but we forgot to leave out. It's because we need them in the hospital so bad right now right? Um, we want you to wear them too, just not yet. We need them in the hospitals, right? Uh, and that part of the message was missing at the time. And so that turned into a, a spun narrative of, oh, the masks don't work and off we go. Uh, and, you know, it's not the, not the whole story. You know, science is supposed to be able to promote uh, recommended behaviors, but, you know, unfortunately, we, we aren't at a place in, in our era currently where we can change what that recommended behavior is easily. And I think that that's another uh, pernicious uh, characteristic uh, that, that we're gonna need to face soon. Um, and, and from a good empirical standpoint is how, how can we better understand when that recommended response changes? What does that do to this more longitudinal kind of uh, behavioral effect? Um, and my studies are, are cross-sectional this far, but longitudinal is where we need to go with this to understand what's the true evolution of risk perceptions and, and their responses. Mm -hmm. Okay, last question. And, and also there was a request to send the name of the paper um, out. And so- Yeah, it's I don't on the slide. Have, okay, if you could just like pull that up real quick and then um, I can ask you this one question at the same time. Um, okay, perfect. So what, the last question is, is your research on attitude towards COVID-19 vaccine taking into consideration other factors such as shared data and testing sizes? Uh, no, no, okay. this is also a, a cross-sectional um, message testing experiment. Um, and it's actually a fairly small N. I think we have less than 300 respondents in our, in our quick study. Um, truthfully, it's a quick and dirty, uh, quick and dirty online experiment. Um, it's one that we think has value to help uh, improve, you know, understandings about the rapidity of, uh, of, of the development of a vaccine. Um, but, you know, with, with that rapidity of the development of a vaccine, it came the rapidity in our evolution to uh, try and get this data out as quick as possible. So there are a bunch of considerations I would have liked to have had in here um, that we simply don't. Um, and it's also just U.S. respondents, um, so we don't have anything like uh, a comparative viewpoint to, you know, other places that, say, have managed testing better than, than uh, here, like South Korea or Singapore. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I think we need to wrap up now. We're 10 minutes over. Um, but we thank, every, we thank you so much, Chris, for this really fascinating presentation. Um, if anybody's interested, look out for this paper. I guess it just got published yesterday. So hot off the press. Um, it's available. And we will, this uh, webinar is recorded and we'll post it on GES's website. So thank you, everybody. And um, have a very safe and happy weekend. Stay safe. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye.